0: Good morning. All right, it's a little better. Well, it is a joy to get to be with you. We are continuing to work through the book of Philippians together, and so the portion that was just read is what we are going to dig into together this morning. But before we do that, let's uh, let's go to our God in prayer. All right. would, you pl- would you please pray with me, Father in heaven? We thank you for the gift of your Word, um, God. We thank you for For revealing yourself to us. God, we ask that as we engage with this text this morning, we would have a, a deeper, a greater, um, a more joyous sense of, of who you are, Lord. So, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would move, uh, that he would show us you, and that he would show us your Son, Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, both of our kids, uh, Oliver, who is five years old now, and Harper, who is three, um, have just started playing soccer, um, and it's been a bit of an adjustment for us. Uh, I remember our first—I remember it was a few weeks ago—our uh, first uh, first Saturday where we had back-to-back games. Uh, Katie and I looked at each other, and and just sort of said with you know, joy, like, I-, I guess this is our, our Saturday now. Like, this, is what- this is what we do. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been good. Um, but it-, it has been a lot of fun to get to see both of our kids on teams and, and watch them learn something new. Uh, Oliver, who's five again, uh, has loved it. Uh, he is on the Great White Sharks. Um, the five-year-old boys got to pick the team name, if that wasn't evident by the name. Um, And Harper, who is on the Pink Unicorns, same deal, Um, she has been a a little bit more uncertain. Um, See, Katie and I started Harper off, we thought in the right direction, we gave her all of the necessary information to know how to play soccer. Um, I dug into my expertise, right, you kick the ball into the goal, I feel like that's that's enough, right? At least for a three-year-old, and she she didn't have a hard time understanding like the general premise of the game. She's supposed to kick the ball. She's been having a hard time though adjusting to the fact that there are other people who are also trying to kick the ball, and she has been a little hesitant to get fully engaged because she keeps waiting for her turn, <laughs> and she gets really frustrated that other kids are not giving her her turn. Um, and it's understandable because for her entire life we've been telling her, you know, you need to share, you need to wait for your turn. And here now we're giving her the opposite message, like, no, go take the ball from that little girl. <laughs> um, it's been, it's been, it's been a, a, a challenging adjustment. Uh, but the thing that is that has helped us to make some progress is isn't giving her more information. The thing that has helped. Uh, helped make her some, the thing that has helped push her along at least a little bit has been to point to the example of other girls. So instead of Katie and I trying to give her more words and say, this is what you're supposed to do. And again, my soccer knowledge is limited. It's just kick the ball. Uh, It's, you know, go look at at Isla kick the ball. Do what Isla's doing. See how Claire just took the ball from that other girl. You should do that too. (laughs) She has benefited far more from looking at the examples of other kids than she has from anything that Katie and I have said. And I think that that reality is true in a lot of different circumstances. Whether it is cooking or doing home repairs, leading a meeting, changing a diaper. We may have all of the necessary information to do any of those things. But when it comes time to do them, we may end up still feeling kind of lost until we have someone who knows what they're doing come alongside us and lead by example. I think the same is true in the Christian life. In Philippians 1.27, Paul tells us to only let our lives, or excuse me, to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right? We are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Philippians 2, in which we are called to take on the mind of Christ, to exemplify his self-sacrifice and humility. And in that passage, we see a powerful description of exactly what Jesus did, how he left position and status and entered into, human, entered into a human frame. He took on our weakness and submitted not just to the limitations that go along with being a human. But no, he submitted to death, a horrible death on the cross, so that we might be saved. Paul tells us that that is the mindset that we are supposed to take on ourselves. Then last week, our text instructed us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we've got some pretty strong commands here. We have a very high calling, and we have the example of Jesus. Those are good things for us to contemplate, good things for us to meditate on. But the Philippian church may have been left wondering what it looked like to embody these commands in their own context. And so in these verses, in the verses that were just read, Paul gives two flesh and blood examples of the selfless conduct to which he is calling the Philippian church. Here are two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now before we dig into our text any further, I would encourage you to take a moment to consider who have been examples, mentors in in the faith for you, people that have come alongside you and shown you, not just in word, but in deed, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Have you thanked God for those people recently? Well, this morning together, I would like for us to take some time to look at the two people that Paul mentions and each of their examples. We'll look at Timothy and then Epaphroditus and we'll conclude by looking at the gift of the church. So let's begin now by looking at the example of Timothy. So Paul writes this in uh, verses 19 through 24. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Well, our passage begins with Paul informing the Philippians of his desire to send Timothy to them. Now, the church at Philippi would have been well acquainted with Timothy, for he was with Paul when Paul first came to Philippi and preached the gospel to them, when Paul was starting the church there. And Paul's letters often mention Timothy because he was regularly given special responsibilities. Now, I think before we look at Timothy's example, the way in which Paul describes his plans with Timothy is instructive for us. Notice how he doesn't just say, hey guys, Timothy is coming, he'll be there on Thursday. No, he says instead that he hopes in the Lord to send Timothy to them. This, Paul's, this shows Paul's understanding of the fact that he is totally dependent on the Lord's will for everything, and I think it's worth noting how often he uses the phrase, in the Lord, or its equivalent, in Christ, in this letter. Right? The idea of being in the Lord or in Christ influenced everything that Paul said and did. Not only does Paul hope in the Lord as he does in this verse, but he grounds his confidence in the Lord, as we see in, in Philippians 2.24. He rejoices in the Lord, as we see in uh, Philippians 3.3 and 4.10. And he desires that others rejoice in the Lord, as he calls us to do in, in chapter 1, verse 26, and chapter 3, verse 1. Paul loves in the Lord, as we see in, in chapter 1, verse 8. He welcomes leaders in the Lord, as we see a little bit later on in our own passage, and always stands firm in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul hopes in the Lord to send Timothy to the church in Philippi for the stated purpose in verse 19 of being cheered by news of the church. And there are two journeys in mind here. Right? Timothy is, is to go to the Philippian church and then back to Paul to report how things are going there. And why is it that Paul wants to send Timothy in particular? Well, these verses tell us it is because of Timothy's unique selflessness. Paul has no one else like him who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Timothy embodies humility, and I think he embodies C.S. Lewis's description of humility. I've I've talked about this before, but I think it is so good it is worth repeating. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, the end of his chapter on pride, makes a brilliant observation about humility. He says that when you encounter someone who is truly humble, you're not going to walk away from an encounter with that person thinking, wow, that person is super humble. That person is not going to spend most of their time talking about how humble they are or how terrible they are. Because if they're talking about themselves, they are not particularly humble. They're actually more self-obsessed. He says instead, when we encounter someone who is genuinely humble, truly humble in a gospel sense, the thing that is going to stick with us is the concern that they show for us, the genuine interest that they have in us. And Paul says that that is, that is, that is what he observes in Timothy. That is, um, that is what is praiseworthy him, in him. Tim Keller expands on C.S. Lewis's point, saying, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Timothy apparently is a person who has so internalized the gospel that he has a unique ability to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. And why do I say that that is a matter of internalizing the gospel? Well, because at the heart of the gospel is the story of Jesus, the one who rightly possesses all things, giving everything up taking on the form of a servant and submitting to the death that our sin deserves. See, Timothy has fixed his eyes on Jesus. And as a result, he is beginning to demonstrate the mind of Jesus. And Paul, knowing that such an example would encourage and serve the church, is eager to send Timothy to Philippi. All right, so that is the example of Timothy. Now let's take, a, let's take a look at Epaphroditus. I'm going to read verses 25 through 30 for us once more. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. As we move forward in the text, we, we encounter Epaphroditus another remarkable individual whose life exemplifies Christ-like sacrifice and dedication to the gospel. Now, the only biblical references to Epaphroditus occur here and then again in chapter 4, verse 18, where it said that the Philippians sent their gifts to Paul through him. But Paul describes Epaphroditus in this text in glowing terms, calling him my brother, referring to him as a sharer of spiritual life with Paul, and so his brother in Christ. He's also called a fellow worker, showing that he is a participant with Paul in the labors of the gospel. And finally, he is called a fellow soldier, meaning that he shares in the dangers involved in standing firm for Christ and in the proclaiming of the gospel. Our passage tells us that Epaphroditus, while serving alongside Paul, fell seriously ill almost to the point of death. But despite the severe circumstances, his commitment to the, to the work of Christ remained unwavering. And Paul's choice of words draws a striking parallel between Epaphroditus's near-death experience and Christ's obedience to the point of death. And by doing so, Paul highlights the sacrificial nature of Epaphroditus's service reminding us of Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Both Christ and Epaphroditus were willing to venture near death for the sake of others. And Epaphroditus's willingness to put his life on the line in, in the service of the gospel exemplifies the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ. Right, so Paul here, again, highlights two men who show us, not just in word, but in deed, what following Jesus looks like. He's, he's highlighting this for the Philippian church so that they're not left questioning, you know, where do I kick the ball? No, 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 they, they see right in front of them. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I can follow the example of these two men. This leads us to our next point, or our last point, the gift of other Christians. In these verses that really just sound like updates, we see the tremendous gift, the tremendous gift that other believers are to one another. In fact, the church, right, Christian community, may be one of the greatest gifts that God has given his people apart from himself. Right? May God forgive us for the times that we take that for granted. The German Lutheran theologian and martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, once wrote, It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and tro- disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. And I think one of the major benefits of living in Christian community is getting to see tangible examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus here and now. See, the spirit that resided in Jesus now resides in his followers, molding us and shaping us, helping us to be more and more like Jesus, respond to situations in the ways that he would want us to, And when we know more people that belong to Jesus, we get to see more of Jesus. Again, this is one of the most beautiful things that goes with belonging to the church. There's going to be diversity in every church community. Ethnic diversity, diversity of age, background, certainly experience. And when we get to know people here, we are going to witness tangible examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus in all sorts of different circumstances. So I think it's worth questioning, are you looking? Do you have your eyes open to the work of Jesus in our midst? The way that he is molding and shaping not just you, but other people in our community. Examples that we can benefit from. Examples that we can learn from. Have you taken the time to notice the faithfulness of Jesus in our midst? I think generally speaking, it's it's easier for us to notice when things aren't as they should be or when people aren't as they should be. I think it's far easier for us, and I think in a lot of ways too, it's safer for us to be disappointed by people or to expect to be disappointed. And I say it's easier or it's it's safer because people (laughs) will disappoint. That happens. And Christians aren't excluded from that. And there's a degree to which we shouldn't be surprised when Christians disappoint us because the first thing that one that one has to do in order to join the club is admit that we're all messed up. Right? Step one is admit our sin and our need for God's grace. Right? Step one to, to joining this place is saying, I am a failure and I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. So, <laughs> We're just the people that that have noticed that about ourselves. So the fact that that we don't do the right thing all the time, it it shouldn't come as a shock. I heard a a pastor uh, say recently on a a podcast that he regularly hears that the church is full of hypocrites, and he says, I disagree, there's room for plenty more. The church is not a perfect community, But it is a community in which God has promised to work. And it is a community in which God is at work. As we saw at the very beginning of this letter, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is hope for us because God is faithful and he is good. So do you have your eyes open to the ways in which God is at work in our midst? Are you open? Are you teachable? Can you set aside your vision of the ideal community so that you can celebrate the community that actually exists? If you are able to, I do believe you are going to see God at work. You'll see him at at work in some small and seemingly inconsequential ways, And you will see him at work in powerful ways as well. I came across an article uh, in the Mockingbird magazine a couple of months ago that is an example of God working powerfully in the lives of believers. Uh, It was about a woman named Diane Collard. Um, Diane and her husband were, were missionaries in Europe. And one day while they were serving, they received a phone call from a detective in California informing them that their eldest son, Tim, had been murdered. Uh, A troubled man, apparently, a man named Mike, assumed that Tim was having an affair with his wife, and in a jealous rage, he shot his wife and Tim. Uh, It was later revealed that, that Tim was not romantically involved with the man's wife. Instead, he was, as one reporter stated, a friend with a listening ear at the wrong place and wrong time. Diane writes, the following months of grief, the waves of pain were accompanied by perennial questions that demanded answers. Why did God allow this to happen? Where is the hope we need to go on living? Is God good? These were only some of the questions that punctuated my journey toward healing. But she goes on Today I can unequivocally declare, yes, God is good. Even in the midst of a life that is unfair, I've surrendered, I've surrendered the question of why to a new question. God, what can you do to both glorify yourself and heal others through this horrible situa- situation? Yet in those first few weeks following Tim's death, when the despair of grief overwhelmed me, I knew that if I did not have God's care, compassion, and strength, I would not survive. I could not go on living. There was a stark realization that without God, I could not handle the grief. Now, her story would have been powerful enough had it ended there, her her journey of, of faith in the midst of horrendous suffering, but her story doesn't end there. Diane says that her grief and wrestling with God threw her into a deeper study of Scripture and she began to ask deep questions about mercy and forgiveness and how those things are demonstrated and defined and she said that she was struck by passages like Colossians 2, 13 and 14, which states, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross which is the ground then for understanding commands like what we have a little bit later in Colossians where Paul tells us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. She said that she came to realize God's forgiveness of her was complete even though it wasn't deserved. And she says, as such, I could not plead ignorance or pick and choose the commands to obey. So she says that she then began the difficult task of trying to forgive her son's murderer. And it began for her with a prayer that God, by his Spirit, would make her willing to forgive the man. And then she began to pray for the man himself by name. The man's name is Mike. And she writes, I had never uttered his name because he had become a monster in my mind. But when I started praying for Mike, he became a man, one whom God loved and for whom Christ died. Eventually, when this man responded to God's offer of mercy and forgiveness, this man became my brother in Christ. She goes on to say, This journey, as difficult as it has been, has taught me so much I truly wonder if I could have ever understood and delighted in God's mercy for me without experiencing what it took for me to forgive the killer of my child. I'm far more aware of the cost of God's forgiveness and his love for me now that I have learned to express mercy and as a result have been blessed with love, grace, and freedom. It's not a lesson I would have chosen, but I'm so grateful for what God has taught me. Christ is sufficient. His word is sufficient, but he gives us more grace in giving us each other and giving us examples to learn from. And we have examples like this, but we have examples in our midst as well. Examples of hard, costly faithfulness like what I just read, but examples of faithfulness in little, everyday acts. In the body of Christ, in this body, we have example after example of the Spirit of God at work. Example after example of what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus here and now. Again, Christ is sufficient. His word is sufficient. But he gives us more grace in giving us each other. So friends, let's dig in. Let's see who we can learn from and ask God to help us to teach others. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who tells us and shows us What you call us to. And Lord, we thank you for the continuing witness and work of your Spirit, your Spirit who applies your word, Jesus's word, to our hearts, and your Spirit who is at work molding and shaping us so that we too can can not simply proclaim the goodness of God, but show it with our actions. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to your work in in, in our midst. Father, help us to celebrate that work. Help us to be encouraged and help us to encourage others. We thank you for the gift of your church. May we see it for the gift of grace that it truly is. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.